You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. The story of Moses wraps up in our reading from Deuteronomy this morning. We follow the major twists and turns of his life over the past several months. Remember, remember Moses, that wee baby saved by the cunning of the Hebrew midwives, who is later taken in by the daughter of Pharaoh drawn out from the river. Remember, again, that grown-up man on the run in the wilderness who one day wanders far from his father-in-law's land to the edge of the wilderness, and there on the mountain he steps aside when he sees a bush burning but not consumed. Remember the man standing barefoot on hallowed ground, convinced that he is not worthy. Remember the man who thinks he can't possibly be the one to lead his people out of slavery, that he is not up to the task, that there surely has to be someone better, anybody more up to it than he, but whom God calls nonetheless to be the bringer of liberation to a people long enslaved. Remember From Egypt in that dark night of death on that first Passover, Moses was the leader of the people. And when they were overcome by joy, singing and dancing as they escaped to watch the destruction of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, Moses was there. When they were hungry, he brought their plight to God and they were fed. When they were thirsty, he petitioned God yet again, and water sprang from a rock to quench their thirst. When they were fearful, he gave the people courage. And when they were cranky, he complained to God about them. (laughs) I mean, well, wouldn't you? (laughs) But Moses was the lawbringer. Moses was their guide, a source of wisdom and strength. Moses was, as our reading said, a servant of the Lord. And he has come to the end of his story alone on Mount Nebu. Looking over the vast land, he starts from the north and his gaze moves to the west and finally to the south, stretching out as far as his eye can see. And there I imagine him sitting on a rock still holding on to his walking stick, just drinking in the view and all these memories running through his head. Sitting there with God, his fellow traveler, along this whole strange journey he's been on, who then whispers to him, this, 
This is it. All you can see, the land of your forebearers, of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah and Rachel. This is your forebearers' land. Perhaps sitting on that rock, his mind wanders back to those other mountains in his life. The mountain with the burning bush, the mountain where he received the law, and now on one last mountain again and again, still resting in the presence of God. Our psalm for today, Psalm 90, begins, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The psalm has an attribution to Moses. It's the only psalm that does. Now, the psalms were collected much later during the exile, probably with the first wave of Hebrew people coming back to the land. And so one can see why a collector of all of these songs might connect this poem back to Moses. Because it is a deep reflection upon the depths of suffering we often bring about on ourselves by our own wrongdoings, wandering around in the wilderness. And the poem speaks to the limits of human life. The sweet regrets we may still hold on to. And it reflects on the great expanse which lies between the eternal nature of the Holy One and the fleeting lives of us humans. But such reflections lead the psalmist not to despair. Not to despair. In verse 12, which unfortunately wasn't in our reading uh, this morning, the psalmist writes what may be best described as a life prayer. He writes, teach us to count our days rightly, that we may get a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom. That's a result of a life well lived. Not a life without mistakes or regrets, but one that is lived with attention, steeped in the grace of a loving God, always yearning to be more faithful. Teach us to count our days rightly, that we might get a heart of wisdom. Perhaps Moses reflects back on his life in this final moments, the times he stepped out in faith when he wasn't quite sure how things were going to work out, and maybe also on those missteps too, those choices he wished he could do over now with the wisdom of more years to guide him. When I read that story in Deuteronomy, it feels like there's a bit of melancholy in it with Moses. We don't actually hear Moses yearning to step onto the land of his ancestors, and yet it's not hard to imagine his pain, that unfulfilled longing as he sits with God and gazes out over the land of his ancestors that he will not walk upon. His is one more chapter in this ongoing story in scripture of displacement and making a home. There will be many more stories to come, some of them of conquest and violence, and others of assimilation 
and learning to live with neighbors in existing societies. There will be stories of exile and return, and there will be times when the people will be gifted with compassionate, good leaders. And then there will be kings who will exploit the poor to satisfy their own greed. They will witness moments of great violence, and yet their prophets will at the same time dream dreams of God's peaceable kingdom of shalom, one of safety, where all the world might live and flourish. Lord, you have been our dwelling place for generations, the psalmist writes. In these days in which we are living, when acts of unimaginable violence by Hamas terrorists have brutally taken the lives of so many in Israel, children, the elderly, peace activists living in kibbutz, and families, when even more families are left clinging to a fragile hope that their kidnapped loved ones may yet be alive, we are left wondering if there ever will come a day when peace prevails. Our hearts break for those who grieve and for our Jewish neighbors here at home and around the world who now live with a greater sense of unease and insecurity. Even now, rockets bring buildings to rubble in Gaza. And we see the familiar cycle of violence start up yet again. And now Palestinian families will grieve the deaths of their children, the elderly, relatives of peace activists, and families. So much death, so much trauma, and we know the death tolls will only grow and many more hearts will be broken. What are we to do? Perhaps now more than ever, we need to hear again Jesus' answer to the question, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Yes, it's a trick question, the third of three controversy stories that are staged in the temple in Matthew's gospel here at the end of Jesus' life. But they say to him, you know the law, Jesus, gifted to us by Moses. So tell us, what's the most important? And Jesus replies with words that they would have all known by heart. Words they would have recited every morning in their prayers. He reaches back into their shared religious tradition to Deuteronomy 6, a portion of the Shema, the very heart of his Jewish faith, and says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. Now these words would have been familiar in his Jewish context as our Father who art in heaven are in ours. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He adds to the Shema a commandment from Leviticus 18 going on to say, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. 
Now, why does Jesus respond to the commandment, what is the greatest commandment, the, the question, what is the greatest commandment, by giving two commandments? Perhaps he's just refusing to be boxed in by their question. I can believe that. Maybe it's just a gentle verbal pushback. But maybe Jesus is saying something essential to them and to us. Linking our love of God with our love of neighbor and our ability to love ourselves. That we can never love God without that same love flowing through us to our neighbors. Now, there's been much religious talk in the air these days. And I want to say that we, as people of faith, need to be very careful with the words we use and the ways in which we express our faith in a country which holds the freedom of religion as a primary virtue. In the chamber of the House of Representatives this week, the new speaker responded to his election by speaking of the Bible and his reading of it. And he went on to say that it led him to believe that God ordained each member of the house for this specific moment. Now that caught me aback. In our nation, the new speaker has every right to believe this about his own sense of calling. Let me be clear. He can, and he does, choose to read Christian scripture in ways which differ greatly from the way in which I read scripture, even though I trained at a historic seminary in his faith tradition. He can do that. But such language of divine ordination of elected officials should trouble us. It weaves too closely together the power of the state and the authority of God. And that, my friends, is a dangerous mix. Like many of you, I've been praying for our elected leaders, for wisdom and compassion to guide their decision-making. We do so here in our sanctuary regularly and at home in our personal prayers, but we must be careful of language which ties our government or any government with a particular religion or religious tradition. We're blessed to live in this country, in a country that has always included many faiths, many variations of our own Christian faith, and I may add, people who do not hold any religious beliefs. Our neighbors are Christian and Jewish, Muslim and Hindu, Sikh and Baha'i and secular folks too. They're our neighbors, and that is our strength. It is not a weakness. Which brings us back to the words of Jesus today. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's pretty clear, isn't it? 
It's hard to miss that. Love God completely and love your neighbor as yourself. It's so crystal clear and frustratingly impossible at the same time, isn't it? And we know we love God incompletely, but this love of neighbor stuff, it takes our faith to a whole different level, doesn't it? Not just the neighbors that live on our street or the neighbors we meet in our workplaces, not just folks who are dear to us, but also those who try our patience. I don't know about you, but I can't do that on my own. That's where the love of God brings about a miracle of grace. As we continually confess the ways we fall short of these great commandments and we ask for the Holy One to grant us a wise heart, a compassionate heart. This teaching of Jesus is so essential to our Christian faith tradition that it's contained in all three synoptic gospels. Loving God is forever linked to loving our neighbors and ourselves. The Apostle Paul writes of it in Romans and Galatians. The author of 1 John later puts it so powerfully, saying, Those who say, I love God, and hate a brother or sister are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their sisters and brothers also. Nicholas Kristof, in a recent op-ed in the New York Times, wrote, When you care about some humans but not others, you've lost your humanity. If you care about human life only in Israel or only in Gaza, then you don't actually care about humanity If your moral compass is attuned to the suffering of only one side, your compass is broken, and so is your humanity. Disciples, if we could only be known by our love, as today's anthem reminds us, if we could only be known by our love. Such love grows over time as we root ourselves in the practices of our faith. When we learn to shape our lives by God's grace, a way of living which embodies those first words of our psalm today, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. The second century church leader Justin Martyr wrote of the guiding vision of a holy Christian community, saying, quote, We who once took most pleasure in accumulating wealth and property now share with everyone in need. We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes because of their different customs now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies. Second century wisdom. 
That is the alternative community that Christ calls us to. The realm of God which Jesus said was breaking into the world even at that moment. The kingdom of God transforming our lives and through us the whole world. Now more than ever, my friends, the world needs folks loving their neighbors. The world needs more folks who see others created in the image of God. We need more folks who are blessed to be peacemakers. More folks who are loving their enemies. More folks who are tending for God's creation. More folks doing justice. Loving kindness. More folks walking humbly with their God. More folks with hearts of wisdom. So that the world will know us by our love. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.